All right, so today I want to talk about this subject of helping fellow sinners. <coughs> Excuse me. Specifically, I want, to, I want to discuss the need for us to keep each other accountable. Uh, in the scriptures, we see from the early church that issues of sin and temptation in the body <clears throat> was not only an issue that was handled by elders and pastors, but was an issue <clears throat> that was handled corporately by all members. We live in a time where our culture believes the false idea that personal sins do not affect anyone else. <clears throat> For example, many in support of homosexuality <clears throat> have asked the church, why do you care what we do with our lives? Let me live my life and you live yours. The same question has been brought up in defense of pornography and the, the porn industry. And they asked the church, why does it matter what people do or watch in the privacy of their own room? <clears throat> See, the reality is that no one remains in the privacy of their room, right? Not for too long. Because the moment they step out, they are officially a member of society. And what affects society, uh, I'm sorry, and what affects you in, in the privacy of your home will eventually affect society because of your presence in it. Likewise, every member of the church uh, must consider the effect of sin in their personal lives and how, uh, how it affects the whole body of Christ. The church is not just an institution, but it is an institution with individual members of it, or in it. And every member makes up the church itself. So God is concerned about both the sanctification of the whole body as a whole, the whole church as a whole, but he's also concerned about the sanctification of each individual member. So, again, I want to discuss how we, how we can come alongside each other as members and help them or help other members with this issue of sin. And I'm going to divide it into three points. So you can see it in your outline there. The three points is point number one, helping others in temptation. Point number two, helping others to repent of sin. And point number three, helping others see forgiveness. Okay, so helping others in temptation, helping others repent of sin and helping others see forgiveness. So let's look at point number one. Helping others in temptation. So as we come alongside others in the faith, it's important to help our brothers and sisters in Christ with this issue of temptation. Like Pastor Ron spoke about last week, each and every one of us deal with this issue of sin and temptation. But if we are to come alongside others with this issue, we must have a good understanding of temptation and how it plays out in the life of sinners. So I want us to look at a verse. Uh, we're looking at James chapter 1, 13 through 15. Would someone read that? There you go. So you see this temptation is one part of a process that happens within us when we confront sin or the possibility of sin. So temptation can often seem like a, like a mystery sometimes. Most of the time after we have fallen into sin, it is like if we just suddenly wake up and look around and ask ourselves, how in the world did I get myself in this situation? 
But in this verse, James help us to, helps us to understand what exactly goes on within us in this process of sin. In this verse, James seems to be using two metaphors. The first metaphor comes from uh, like a picture of fishing, for example. When you fish, there's bait, there's this uh, wheeling in concept. And you'll see that in verse 14, this, this metaphor. Notice the language that James uses when he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So other versions would say, dragged away and enticed by his own evil desire. So now James might, be, might have been a fisherman himself, maybe not. But even if he wasn't a fisherman, he certainly was well acquainted with the profession from his upbringing living near the Sea of Galilee. So it's possible that he may be thinking of fishing um, when he uses these, this kind of wording. And the example fits perfectly um, with everything that he's trying to communicate. So just to sort of put that verse 14 using the fishing uh, metaphor, imagine the bait on the fisherman's hook as it entices the fish. And once it is hooked, the fish would be dragged away or lured. Likewise, James is using this imagery to show what goes on when we are tempted and fall into sin. By the way, other Jewish authors before James would use similar illustrations, uh, which included the same verbs involved in this verse. For example, the philosopher Philo says uh, in his, in his uh, writings on husbandry, he says, there is no single thing that does not yield to the enticement of pleasure and get caught and dragged along in her entangled, entangled nets. So again, you see that same thing in Jewish writing before James wrote his, his, his uh, letter there. So again, the fact that these verbs were commonly being used with this kind of spiritual application shows that James would have more, like, more than likely used this kind of frame of explanation when he thinks about temptation. So what does that mean practically? Well, picture Satan casting enticements of sin before us, then hooking us and dragging us away when we bite, right? That's what temptation is. When we read uh, verse 14, it tells us that each person is tempted. And again, we must assume that if, if we are tempted, there is a tempter, right? Which is Satan or anything being used by Satan. Now, that would be the bait. However, we also see in this verse that what lures us and entices us is actually our own desires. So, uh, in simple terms, uh, Satan can put many things out before us, but in the end of the day, it is our own desires that when we, when we take a look at it, when we consider it, our own desires will drag us into this fall of, of sin. So, although Satan plays a major role in our temptation... It is we who sin against God because it's our own desires that lure us to commit the sin if and when we fail to resist the temptation. If we don't, actually. Um, now, this brings me to this, this very important point. We must understand that there is a distinction between temptation and actually committing the sin. A lot of times when we think about uh, temptation or, or, or we, let's just say we confess to our brothers and sisters in Christ, man, I've been tempted all day. There's this, uh, there's this demeanor of exhaustion and, 
and at times we can feel guilty of being surrounded by so much temptation. And the, and the confusion is at times that we tend to feel guilty of the temptation and not necessarily the falling of sin. Uh, we feel that the temptation is as equal as the falling of sin, but there is a distinction. There's temptation, but there's actually uh, the aspect of committing the sin. Many Christians live out the faith feeling a great weight of condemnation on themselves simply because they are constantly surrounded by sinfulness and temptation. Now, even though temptation can lead you to sin and should be dealt with with great caution, it's important to understand that temptation is not the same as the act of committing a sin. And we know this because of two reasons mentioned in Scripture. Reason number one, we have not been called out of this world but rather to remain in the world as holy people set apart for God's purposes. So uh, a lot of times we say, well, I want to remain holy. I want to be holy. I want to grow in the faith. So I'm just going to withdraw from everything of the world. And if that were the case, we'd have to find a mountain somewhere. And even if we were to find the mountain, sin is, uh, in order to abstain or, or keep that mountain from sin, you actually have to leave the mountain. So uh, sin is actually within yourself. But again, we have not been called out of the world, but rather to remain in the world as holy people set apart for God's purposes. And reason number two, Jesus himself faced temptation and yet was without sin. So our Lord faced temptation. However, he was not in sin. But let me, let's look back at reason number one, um, which I said we're not called out of the world, but to remain in it. We see this verse... Uh, in the book of John, verse 17, I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 15 through 18. Um, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he asked God the Father not to take us out of this world. Uh, someone like, some, would someone like to read that out loud, please? So again, you see, I do not ask them. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So uh, Jesus is asking that, the, that God, the Father, would keep us in the world, but still protect us from the enemy. Another verse is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Can someone read that? So, again, just going with my point, we see in this verse that Paul understood the reality that in order for you to be completely isolated from sexual immorality of this world, which is actually just one category of sin amongst the many, you would literally have to leave this world. In other words, it is common to face sin and temptation, being that we live in this world. Yet Jesus prays to the Father that we would remain in the world, but that God would protect us, his elect, from the evil one. So there we see the distinction between the reality of everyday temptation in life and actually being guilty of sin itself. Uh, now, reason number two is that Jesus himself faced temptation 
and yet was without sin. Here's a verse for that, Hebrews 4.15. I'll read it. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So again, this verse shows us a separation of temptation and sin. We see that Jesus was tempted, yet was without sin. Now, going back to James uh, 1, 14 and 15, we can see that if temptation is left unchecked, our desires would then give birth to sin and from sin to death. Uh, in verse 15, again, this is going back to James 1, verse 15, it says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James now shifts the metaphor, right, and begins to describe this issue that desire can create within, the spiritual, within our spiritual lives. He uses the metaphor of conception and birth. So James pictures desires as conceiving and giving birth to sin. And sin, once it, ex- once, once it exists, becomes fully grown, it will eventually produce death. You see that, that uh, order? You have, uh, you have what is being placed in front of you, right? The bait. Your, when your desires meet with that bait, your desires will eventually lead to sin if you do not, uh, if you, if you do not resist the temptation. Once it leads you to sin, if that sin continues to grow, in other words, if it's left unchecked, it will eventually lead to death. Some commentators say not only physical death, but spiritual death, um, if sin is left unchecked. Again, we are promised the Holy Spirit, so to that degree, it doesn't necessarily apply to us as far as spiritual death, right? Because the Lord has placed a spirit within us, and that spirit will eventually lead us to repent from that sin and bring us to our knees and ask God to forgive us from that sin. Um, but again, that's, that's the pattern, that's the goal of sin when it's left unchecked. Uh, it says here that now, uh, uh, okay, so James pictures desires as conceiving and giving birth to sin, and sin, once it exists and becomes fully grown, it will eventually produce death. Now, this doesn't mean that every desire will eventually lead to sin, right? Uh, we see in scriptures that desires are good by creation. It ought to lead us to enjoy God, right? Enjoy creation. That's what desires were meant to be when, when God gave us desires. They were meant to enjoy God, enjoy creation. Uh, they were meant to lead us to eat, right? To enjoy food. They were meant to uh, lead us to procreate, right? Our desires for our spouse and so on and so forth. So desires in and of itself are good. They're given to us by God. However, because of our union with Adam, our desires are capable to become corrupted uh, to the point that even a good desire can lead to lust and covetousness and to steal and to fornicate. So it's interesting that when something good and praiseworthy happens in your life, for example, you get that promotion at work and you feel great about it, and you even thank the Lord for allowing this promotion at work, those good things can still become Satan's bait to lure you into the sin of pride or the sin of greed. 
The same thing can be said about pious acts or good deeds. Um, even when you're humble, right? Even when you're humble, you can be tempted to be proud of your humility. Isn't that ironic? See, it's when your desire for good things, right, turn these good, t- good things into ultimate things, which is really a position reserved for God. That's when sin creeps in. In other words, admiration for beauty, right? When you look at art, when you go to a museum, when you go to uh, an aquarium and you look at the, the things that are created and you admire beauty, that's a good thing. But beauty, when you admire beauty, it can easily turn into sinful passions, obsessions, and lusts. Same thing with enjoying a delicious meal, right? Enjoying a delicious meal can turn into an unhealthy obsession for food. And again, they begin with good desires. Righteous deeds can easily turn into a desire for self-justification. The pursuit of prosperity, which is actually a good thing, can easily turn into greed and self-sufficiency, or a feeling of self-sufficiency, rather. An unchecked friendship with the opposite sex can open the door to unfaithfulness to marriage. So you get the idea. Anything, anything that's good can be turned, can, you can turn it into the ultimate thing, and eventually it, it corrupts itself. In our attempt to help our brothers and sisters in Christ, right, when we are here in the church and we're here to help each other when it comes to some temptation, what we're attempting to do, and this is the goal for us as we learn more about this topic, Our goal is that um, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we come alongside each other and what we're attempting to do is to help them in advance to avoid falling into sin. Uh, Now, this takes much wisdom. When we come alongside our brothers and sisters and try to help them in temptation, we don't want to jump the gun too early, right? We don't want to come up to them and assume that they're living in sin, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It is wrong always to have false assumptions towards people. You can't just assume something and have these false assumptions and just go for it. We owe it to each and every one of you, right? We owe it to each other to get our facts straight and consider every matter with a sober mind. It's very easy, and let me tell you, it's very easy to create a snowball effect in your mind and think that someone is in sin because they visited a sick grandmother in Las Vegas, right? And if they went to Vegas then that must mean that they hung out at the casinos. And if they hung out at the casinos, that must mean that they were around a sinful group of people. And if they hung around a sinful group of people, then that must mean that they acted sinfully. And they're not going to confess it to you because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. (laughs) And so on and so forth. So, again, that's a snowball effect that we created in our minds. Uh, And we're really good at this. Um, Well, at least I am. Um, and, and we have to be careful of, you know, creating this whole story uh, when it comes to judging others in Christ. So, again, let's be wise when we judge. However, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that the church should be naive, right? Like, you know, innocent until proven guilty. You know, we, we don't want to deal with it unless it arrives in our face. Um, we don't want to be naive. We, we as a church must be realistic and be aware of the many ways that Satan, Satan can tempt the church into falling in sin. Uh, if we are to love the body of Christ, we must be alert and help others avoid sin. It is 
only a short step to go from that temptation process to the sinful desire process to that sinful desire becoming an actual sin that they commit. Uh, Ed Welch, which is an author of the book Side by Side, um, he offers a list of different kinds of people that might be particularly vulnerable in temptation, not to judge that you know, each and every one of these people on the list you know, they, they're actually guilty of the sin itself. But he, he, he has a list um, and says that these kind of people might, might more than likely be vulnerable in temptation. Um, in other words, the opportunity for falling is, is greater in, their, in, in, in these kind of people. So this is the list. Uh, number one, those who often travel overnight. Right? You're traveling overnight. Uh, there's a good possibility that you can fall into temptation, right? Now, it doesn't mean that they, it, all the time that they're falling in sin. If you travel overnight, that doesn't mean that you're guilty of sin. But traveling overnight, um, and again, what I mean by traveling overnight is traveling alone overnight or away from your family, that kind of situation. Um, that would leave open possibilities of, of uh, you know, interacting with, with maybe the opposite sex or things of that nature. But again, these are just ideas, okay? Things to put in your mind, things to think about so that we're not naive. Another kind of person, those who have lots of time alone or, un- or time unaccounted for. It uh, doesn't mean that if you have a lot of free time that you are sinning. What it means is that those who have lots of time alone or unaccounted for, there is a big window for temptation. That's what it means. Another kind of person is those who have a history of addictions, or taking an addictive substance such as narcotics, or even people who had, who in their past have had uh, alcohol issues and things like that, uh, you see where temptation um, is is very possible for them. Around, you know, if they live anywhere near people who drink or they know anyone uh, who who drinks, well, that would be an issue for them. But again, anyone who has a history of addictions, they're open to much temptation. Another kind of person is those who spend time alone with the opposite sex. Um, we can pretend like there's, there's no chemistry, for lack of a better word, between male and female. Um, I remember, I remember uh, when I was maybe a couple of years ago in my workplace and um, a friend was asking me, this is a friend who was married, was asking me, uh, is it is it possible to be friends with a person of the opposite sex? And I know that the answer is, it, it is possible. But my answer was, no, it's not possible. Uh, and the reason why is because how, how far uh, of a friendship can you go? What, what, does, that even, what does that even mean? Um, and just so much involved in that. Now, I, I do realize that it is possible to be friends with someone of the opposite sex. However, the reason why I answered so quickly and saying no is because I knew this person was married and I knew that this person, uh, there's no reason for this person to go ahead and have such an intimate friendship uh, with someone who wasn't their spouse. And uh, if I can do anything to point them back to their spouse, that would be my goal. Again, you don't need, no, you don't need any friends from the opposite sex. You have your wife or you have your husband, uh, whatever the case may be. And so that is always my pointing to. Um, and so... Again, this is not definitive. You can have friends of the opposite sex. However, this leaves a huge, huge open window for temptation. Uh, Another one that he put here uh, is college students. I don't know what that means. 
uh, but apparently college students have a huge uh, open window for temptation. If you're a college student today, you probably know more uh, in detail, or you, can, you probably can object um, to that because you're, you're, you're in that world. But that's what he has on the list, uh, so let's keep that in mind. Um, those who are dating, those who are dating are, uh, are in a huge window of temptation. Um, you're not, I'm not going to say it's wrong to date or it's wrong to find a, find a person for you, um, but the reality is that it is hard. Uh, I, I speak to friends who are dating. I know people who are dating, and they themselves will tell you, you know, it's tough. Uh, it's tough to be dating, and I love this person. I care for this person. I even care for this person spiritually, but um, temptation is always around the corner. And so that's the reality of that. Um, another person described here is those who are rich and want to be, or want to be rich. Um, and we know from the scriptures that uh, having money is not necessarily wrong or being rich is not necessarily wrong. However, that desire uh, and that pursuit of being rich as an ultimate thing uh, can be very dangerous and lead to much temptation. And I think there's much wisdom in Ed Welch's list. I'm sure there's much to be added. In fact, I would also add to that list um, those who voluntarily distance themselves from church are more vulnerable in temptation because they aren't confronted about sin as much nor feel the weight of their sin as much in comparison to someone who is constantly around word, word and sacrament or the word and the ordinances. Uh, so when you distance yourself from church, more than likely... Um, you're not getting the accountability that you need, nor is your conscience being fed with the word of God. Therefore, your conscience is weak. Things that uh, otherwise you would have thought to be a horrendous sin, you probably get used to it, and it's sort of left unchecked. And so again, people who distance themselves from the body of Christ, to me, is number one on that list um, of people who are particularly vulnerable in temptation. With that said, uh, I, th I think the word calls us to be confrontational with brothers and sisters in Christ. For the sake of accountability, again, without neglecting to be gracious and understanding with each other. Uh, also, each, each of us should not take offense if a brother or sister confronts us or warns us of possible temptations. In other words, you, have, you yourself should help other people in their temptations. But that also means that the tables get flipped as well. If someone approaches you, even if they're wrong, and they say, hey, brother, I saw you talking to this girl, man, and I don't think that you guys should be talking alone. Yeah, you, in your mind, you're like, well, that girl, I'm totally not attracted to that girl at all. Believe me. But um, the person is, is doing their job before the Lord. They're trying to guard you. They're trying to protect you. Um, and that, would, that serves you in so many different ways. It serves you from people falsely accusing you from certain things that you should not be doing or certain situations that you should not be put in. And again, we, we must take it with humility when someone corrects us or tells us, hey, you know, you should, you should consider, you know, not doing that. And even if they're wrong and you're right, take it and move on, you know. This is the job of the believer when, when they're in, in the body of Christ. This is an act of love and obedience to the one God that we all serve, right? Us here in the body of Christ. Likewise, with love and grace, we ought to do the same for others. All right, let's look at point number two. How are we doing on time? Okay. 
helping others to repent of sin. Now, what I mean by helping others repent of sin is that we, the church, must be able to confront one another when we see a brother or sister, not in temptation, we discussed that already, but being able to confront a brother and sister in Christ who is actually living in sin or committing sin repeatedly and is unrepentant towards it. Again, this is different from helping others with temptation because this deals with others who are actively committing sin. Um, Now, I understand that being confrontational can be difficult for some of us, including myself. In fact, the hardest sins to talk about are those we see someone commit, but we don't receive that invitation to talk about it. And it feels way more comfortable to be part of a church where no one confronts each other or deals with sin issues. However, this is the means in which God keeps his bride pure, as difficult as that may seem. And for this, this, for this reason, Jesus institutes the order of church discipline, which we see in Matthew 18, uh, starting with verse 15. Can someone read that verse? Yes. So again, there's that aspect of confronting one another uh, when sin has happened. Now, this must be done with the motivation that we see at the end of the verse. What do you see at the end of the verse? It says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the motivation. Uh, In other words, we're not to go on a witch hunt, right, and searching for everyone's sins, but rather with love and with the motivation of gaining our brother in Christ, we confront him or her for the sake of their soul. And this is a motivation. This this ought to be done out of love um, if, if, if we are to obey what that says. Another passage, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Can someone read that passage? Peter, which he's called Cephas here in this passage, was confronted by Paul for his conduct. At first, Peter was eating freely with the Gentiles who did not practice circumcision. Apparently, he ate with them while disregarding the Mosaic regulations concerning kosher and non-kosher foods, right? And this was done because of the grace of the gospel. Yet when the circumcision party of the Jews came, He pulled away from the table and distanced himself from the Gentiles, acting as if Gentiles had to become like Jews in order to be saved and be members of God's people. This was hypocrisy, which actually led other Jews to act hypocritically as well. So, Paul confronted Peter for the sin of not conducting in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, imagine if such a sin was left without being confronted. The scriptures say that because because of Peter's act of hypocrisy, 
the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now for Paul, he saw this essentially as a gospel issue. But, uh, yeah, so what was at stake was not only the purity of the church of Christ, but the doctrine of justification that he was trying to protect. If this kind of sin was left unchecked, many would have continued in their hypocrisy, they, have, they would have been led astray, and a false gospel would have spread with the lie that one must be circumcised in order to be saved. So thank God for that confrontation, right? In our context, imagine what the church would be if sin was just left unchecked. We just leave it alone. Who cares? Typically, it begins with one or two incidents. Next thing you know, the whole church continues in hypocrisy, ignoring the sin issues, remaining passive, right? Just a chill church. And many are led astray. Confronting others can feel very difficult, and I know that's tough. Yet most people who have seen acts of sin, most people who have seen acts of sin never look back regretting that they raised these important matters, especially when they're brought up with wisdom and love. If anything, most people have regretted being silent in times when they know they should have spoken up. For example, there's a, another illustration in Welch's book, Side by Side. And he gives this illustration of, I guess this was a true story of a church, uh, an incident that happened in the church. He says here, a church was left dazed when both men's leader and woman's leader left their spouses, wrote a goodbye note to their families, and disappeared together. As a plan for, past, uh, I'm sorry, as a plan for pastoral care gradually developed, over a dozen people in the church said, I should have said something. They had observed the way that the two leaders had interacted and spoken about each other, and they regretted remaining silent. When sin becomes public, especially when it, when it is a sin that damages relationships or incurs legal problems, so many people look back and think, I should have said something. Yet we are slow to remember these mental notes. Our fear of people's angry reactions, or even the myth that says that help is only needed when asked for, or our sense that we have no right to say anything because we ourselves are quite a mess. These contribute to the safe kind of relationships that we have in church rather than real loving relationships that confront each other. So confronting sin is not only a pastor's job, uh, but the job of the congregation as well. Um, I'm going to try to speed through this because of the sake of time, but I'll show you a verse here. This verse here, 1 Corinthians 5, two to three, um, describes Paul's reaction towards the church at Corinth because they just let this sin slide. I'll read it. It says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in, in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not even there, yet this should have been taken care of. And with that said, we see the responsibility of all members to play a part in supporting each other with, with, this, uh, with this issue and keeping each other accountable with issues of sin. Okay, and then let's look at the last point. Helping others see forgiveness. 
Uh, more than likely, if a person that you confront regarding a sin issue is a true believer, we know because of the Holy Spirit that they more than likely will re receive your rebuke and will seek to be restored. It may take time, but eventually it will happen. And Galatians 6.1 shows us how we ought to approach this situation. Can someone read Galatians 6.1? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him to the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too Thank you. So notice by this verse that our attitude towards our brother who has fallen and seeks to be restored should not be... I hope you learned your lesson, man. Our job is to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If we can recognize their sincere regret towards the sin and desire to seek God's face, then we must not try to punish him or her with our attitudes or passive-aggressive acts or even isolate ourselves from that individual. Again, this is why Paul says after to keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We are called to help restore this person. And when a person repents of their sin, we must see this as an event that is worthy of praise to God. This is a good thing when someone repents from their sin, especially when it's a voluntary thing that they confess their sin to you. This is evidence that the Spirit's power is at work in them, and it deserves our admiration. When you see someone repent of their sin, um, even a sin that you didn't know about before, they just come and tell you, they confess it to you. An appropriate response should be, thank you so much for confessing this. I know that there is much to be done, but no one can say what you said apart from the Holy Spirit. This is real evidence that God is holding on to you and won't let you go. Now, on the flip side, we must not cheapen the weight of the person's violation towards God by uh, commiserating. A very common mistake, and this is a mistake that I do, and I need you to pray for me because I do this a lot. A very common mistake is to either match sin for sin or to over-sympathize in some way. In other words, <clears throat> for the sake of bringing comfort to that person who has sinned, you may be tempted to share your sin so that it cheapens the weight of theirs. It's like, uh, let's say the person is struggling with uh, porn addiction or something, and they confess it to you, and you come and say something like, oh, don't worry, man, I struggle with porn addiction too. Um, and so what you're doing is you're cheapening their confession. You're cheapening their realization of what they're going through. Or you say, uh, say, you know, I struggle with this person, and you come to them and you say to their ear, don't worry, man, I struggle with that person too. She drives me crazy. And so these, <laughs> these uh, sort of matching sin for sin just so that, and, and you, may, you may do it out of good faith and you care about them, you want to, comfort them, but doing that cheapens the weight of their sin. And even though our goal might be to make someone feel less embarrassed or feel less alone when they confess their sin, this type of commiserating doesn't help. What it does, it takes the focus off the sin issue at hand, um, or even the issue that we're trying to deal with of helping our brother fight against this particular sin. Uh, again, we, we are not to make light of the sin issue. If we see that the Holy Spirit has started something in that person, we want to keep in step with what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so just be mindful how we uh, restore our brothers. Uh, the right way to restore our brothers, I got about three minutes to wrap this up. So the right way to help our brothers 
is to show them forgiveness in the gospel. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, like Israel in the past, God made a covenant with us as well, just like he did with Israel. And his covenant with us is that we would worship and obey him, not as a means of achieving merit or trying to make it into heaven, but because he's a faithful God. Israel was called to remember their Lord in Deuteronomy 8.18, which says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Again, this call to remember the faithfulness of God. Another verse in Psalms 77, 11 through 20, a psalm of Asaph. He says here, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your, mighty, your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeem your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. There you go. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Where are we at? There you go. Okay. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lightened up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your ways was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footstep, um, your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What it meant and what it still means to love and worship God is to remember the faithfulness of God displayed in his mighty acts in history. Likewise, our motivation for obedience and worship is the same to remember the faithfulness of God displayed in his mighty acts of the gospel. We see in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, there we see Paul speak on the, the mighty work of God in Christ, redeeming us apart from, the, apart from our works. And again in verse 10, our call to obey in response to what Christ has done for us. Ephesians 2, 12 through 13 says, Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So when we help others seek forgiveness of sins, we must lead them back to the gospel. And the, the, the important part of that is this aspect of remembering the mighty acts of God. Looking back at your baptism, right? Looking back at your conversion. That's the purpose of these ordinances. Looking back at these events... 
um, remembering that you were once far off and God has brought you near through Christ. And this is what helps restore a sinner back to, uh, back to that right relationship with God. Now, although we want to see them walk in obedience right away, the power cannot be in that person's own strength. So when you help someone who fell, don't tell them right off the bat, you know, hey, I need you to start doing this, 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 and that. Although certain disciplines may be helpful. But the most important thing is that they attend the means of grace, that they go back in remembering Christ and the work that Christ has done on the cross. In other words, we must lead them back to the true power source of obedience, which is faith in the secure work of Christ on their behalf. This is what strengthens their soul. They must remember, like Israel, on the mighty acts of God, and in their case, the mighty act of salvation uh, that Christ has achieved for them, taking them from, bondery, uh, uh, from the bondage of slavery to freedom uh, in the gospel. And the Holy Spirit uses the gospel for strength uh, for, for them to further obey. And this is how we truly restore our brothers. So keep that in mind. The gospel is the, the source of power for a person to stand back up. Okay, I'm out of time. Conclusion. Uh, as believers, we're called to one body. Because of that, we have the responsibility to come alongside others and play our part as God builds his church through us. Um, and like we've discussed, part of that means helping others in temptation, helping others to repent if they've fallen in sin, but also helping others to see forgiveness in Jesus. And as we help others, we must be humble enough to also accept when others confront us about our own sin and temptation. Uh, this is not only what is best for us, but it, it is God's way of building us up more into the image of his son. Uh, so again, may God give us grace to persevere through that kind of conflict um, and that he would give us hearts that are eager to see this outcome of what uh, God is doing uh, in the church. For the glory of his name, of course. Amen. By the way, no time for questions. I got to pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for uh, helping us to understand uh, what it means to be a member in the church, to help others by confronting them with sin or possible temptation. Uh, we just pray that we would be gracious and we would keep this in mind. But may our goal be always to restore a brother, uh, to gain our brother, or to protect our brother when it comes to temptation, Lord. Um, our desire is that this church would remain pure, and we know that it can only be possible through the blood of Christ and, and through the gospel um, that has been given to us by your grace, Lord. Uh, we thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.